How's everyone doing today? This is Dervin, your uh, co-host with Synonyms of Sound. And this is your second co-host, Tony. And I have the pleasure of introducing Debbie Bornstein-Hallstedt. Um, she's one of the authors of the Survivors Clubs. How's it going, to Debbie? Good. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Uh, thank you for being in the show. And here, guys, this is a quick clip of her book. Um, amazing book. You should definitely read. Uh, one of the lucky people that was able to get it signed, um, it was signed for my wife, but I'm just going to take the credit that I got it signed myself. But amazing book. Definitely recommend reading it. So before we jump into this, Debbie, um, how are you doing today in general? I'm good. I'm good. I, it's Thanksgiving weekend um, while we're recording this. And um, as such, I am counting my blessings this weekend and, and there are many of them. So I'm doing good. Thank you. How are you? Awesome. Awesome. I'm doing great. Thanksgiving was amazing. Turkey was great. Food was great. Um, as you can see, I'm in a little cabin behind me because I'm um, in Maine, but I had a good uh, good Thanksgiving. Durbin, how was your Thanksgiving? It was good. Uh, you know, it's uh, been a long time since, uh, at least it feels like that, since uh, so much family in, in one place. So uh, growing family at that, got some siblings, uh, having kids now. Um, so that was different. Uh, but uh, definitely a, a good time. Well needed uh, weekend that always seems to um, not be long enough, unfortunately. But yes, I, I, agree. I, agree. I agree. I agree. So, so Debbie, um, how did the journey of the Survivors Club start? Um, and I guess it, it's it's an amazing title for a book. And I would love to know the, the story behind the title as well. But how did the book start? So uh, Survivors Club is... Uh, the story of not just my dad's survival from Auschwitz, but of his, so many of his family members' survival. Um, and when I first started writing it, the plan was just to write, to, to write, honestly, my dad's story. It was something I'd thought about doing since I was young. I always knew my dad was a Holocaust survivor. There's the tattoo on his arm. I don't remember a time I didn't know, but I also don't remember a time I didn't know that you don't ask about it. It was something my dad didn't mm-hmm. talk about. I knew of other people asked that he quickly deflected. Um, and so uh, it was just sort of a part of him and a part of my family history that we didn't touch. And um, many years later, um, in around, I think it was around 2012, um, the oldest grandchild, my dad now has 12, my mom and dad have 12 grandchildren, but the oldest. Oh my God. Yeah. The oldest started asking questions. And as much as my three siblings and I, uh, when we were growing up, if we even touched the subject, my dad would would change, you know, just talk about something else. It wasn't something he wanted to talk about. Uh My dad never says no to his grandkids. So he started talking. Ah. And and my nephew, Jake, oldest grandchild, said to his papa, I want you, I'm doing a mitzvah project. That's like a good deed kind of a project. He said, and I want for my project, I want you to come to my school and I want you to teach people about the Holocaust. And again, papa never says no. So suddenly um, he did, he went and he spoke, but he had limited information. My dad was four and a half when he stepped out of Auschwitz, when Soviets liberated him. And he had, Mm -hmm. you know, he did have family members there with him. So he has pieces of the story, but it was missing a lot. And I had asked my dad many times over my life, could I research and could I maybe write his story with him? And he said, no, 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 no. And suddenly he said, you know what? Let's, let's explore this. And we got it. We can, you can Google anything now. So we Googled children, liberation, Auschwitz. And we went searching for this photo that's here on 
um, the front of the book. Um, it's a picture of a little mm -hmm. boy that most people um, have seen over the years, a little boy in Soviet footage, rolling up his sleeve and showing his tattoo to the cameras. And we went looking for that. And it took us to a bunch of thumbnails. They all looked just like that. And, and uh, it said, do you, um, you know, we clicked on one and it said, do you want to visit the site? We said, yes. And it took us to something called the Cado Revisionist Forum. It's a Holocaust deniers website. And it captured mm -hmm. that image of my father. This shows the lies that Jews have been telling that children were killed on arrival in Auschwitz. It captioned another photo of my father um, that is used actually on the back of the book. Pretty healthy children for a, quote, death camp inside. I have it on this one. And on the back of the hardcover, exactly. It says Grandmother Dora carrying him out of Auschwitz. And Got it. That, that was fuel for my dad. And he felt strong. Mm. If the Holocaust deniers are talking, it was time. He needed to talk. So I so I, you mentioned something about lies. So you you mentioned saying that um, a lot of stories were saying that when kids arrived, they were killed immediately. So that isn't accurate. Is that what you're saying? It's not completely it's what, accurate. Um, the average lifespan for a child my dad's age was two weeks at Auschwitz. So it is true <laughs> that most got it okay. died pretty darn fast. Um, and at this point in the war, actually, this was July of 1944 when he entered. Most kids did go right to the gas chambers. We have um, we have spent a lot of time and spoken to a lot of historians around the world trying to understand why my dad, he wasn't twin. Twins were kept alive often to be experimented on. So one could be the control group and one could be the experimentee. Wow. Um, there were some kids that were strong enough to do work. You know, there were reasons to keep kids there. Um, but we've tried to understand at that point in the war, war why my dad was given a number. It was one of the last numbers given out at Auschwitz, we were told why he was given a number and why he was put in a children's bunk. And to be honest with you, the answer is almost universal across the board. Historians look at us and they call, they call it a miracle. So I can't, that's one thing I can't completely answer, why he was selected to be put in a children's bunk. Only 52 children under the age of eight survived Auschwitz and um, my father was one of them. And we've sort of had to accept over the years that there are some details we will never know. Um, and historians fill those in by saying it, 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 there is a miracle aspect here. Got it. Got it. Got it. Okay. And you asked I mean, why it's called survivors clubs. You want me to. Yeah, that would be great. That would be great. That'd be awesome. Yep. Still recording. Yes. So yep. yes. Um, why the name Survivors Club? We had so many different names. Um, I had this long list of, of ideas um, for the book. And I kept going back to Survivors Club for one reason. Um, this is not just my father's story. I am so lucky that um, so many relatives were so gracious and shared pieces of their story with, with me. Um, but one of the biggest miracles of all laid out in this book is the fact that um, my dad's mom, my grandma Sophie, who survived Auschwitz as well, she had six brothers and sisters before the war. Um, her um, oldest sister was in uh, Warsaw, trekked across Siberia, was saved ultimately by a famous Japanese statesman, Chuni Sukihara, and made it all the way to Japan. Her littlest sister was in the Warsaw ghetto, Majdanek, Skarzuszko, Buchenwald, and was led on a death march 
out of Buchenwald. Several of the brothers went into hiding in various attics and bunkers. And the amazing thing is that all seven siblings survived. This town had about 3,500 Jews uh, before the war, the little town of Zarki in Poland. Only 27 were known to have come home and it was mostly our family. And so Survivors Club, we chose that name because this is this elite group of lucky survivors. They, none of them knew which path would lead to survival and somehow all seven paths led to survival. And um, I wanted to make sure the name reflected this, you know, sort of honored this, this group um, of survivors in my dad's family. Um, so many kids that survived Auschwitz experienced so much trauma afterwards even um, because they had nobody. And my dad had this rich network of family, you know, rich is rich in family, but penniless, <laughs> otherwise penniless, but, but where it mattered, they were still rich. So. Got it. Um, so as you did the research for this book, what was like the most, I guess the entire story is heartbreaking, but what were some of the heartbreaking moments as you'd uncover thing that really kind of crippled you and like, oh my God, like he really went through this. If you don't mind sharing some of that. Yeah. I, so when I started writing, I thought that the book would end um, at that moment of liberation that's, that's pictured on the front of the book, that that moment where my father is finally free. That's where the story ends, right? But in talking to him and him, once he began to really open up, I realized he had a real struggle after that too. And he had never told anybody. My mom knew, but but nobody else knew. Um, after the war, my dad, his grandma, his aunts and uncles, everybody ended up in Germany. Um, seems like a weird place to go if you're you know a survivor back to Germany. But actually, um, there were DP camps that were set up, displaced persons camps that were set up. The Red Cross and other uh, relief organizations had bases there, and they helped people. So he ended up um, in Germany for several years, and. Um, while he was there, he was bullied, antagonized, beat up uh, because he was Jewish, because he was different. He had trouble growing hair from the malnutrition he had suffered at Auschwitz. And he was, his mom, my grandma Sophie, was trying to make ends meet the best she could. She didn't have an education. Um, she barely spoke the German language. So she was buying and selling things on the black market. Um and, you know, just to survive. And so she would not come home some nights. She would do her work late at night. And my father was afraid that he would lose her all over again, as he had for a, a time during, you know, when he was in Auschwitz. Um, he lost his father. He lost his brother. And they were murdered at Auschwitz. And so he... Um, he lived with that fear. So one day he was hitchhiking to his aunt and uncles. His mom said, well, go to, go to you know, Aunt Sesha's for, for the night. So she, he was hitchhiking there. And he was picked up by, he was accosted. Mm -hmm. He was sexually assaulted. And it was something, wow. I just thought insult to injury is an understatement. This, my father survived Auschwitz to then be re-traumatized. Um, and I also just, there are certain things that stick with me. My father talking about having to root through the trash at Auschwitz. He would sneak into the trash can looking for moldy potato peels to eat. And today, my dad makes sure, you know, if we're out, he's out with the grandkids, they, you know, they've got triple dessert. They, you know, like, how dare I not give them a third dessert? How dare I make them suffer? And here's my dad who, at 
you know, their ages was rooting through the trash for survival. It's really hard to hear. I, I know him as the proud papa on the sidelines of the soccer games, shouting the loud and mm-hmm. embarrassing the kids at their graduations. And, you know, and to connect the dots to what, to that boy on the front of the book is, is hard for me. Yeah, it was hard. seven family members still alive today so um, my grandma sophie is gone she died in the late 80s and her brothers and sisters are all gone now um there's one neighbor who was probably our best source for the book his name is marvin sporovsky and no i knew all the aunts and uncles for the most part they were alive in my lifetime but they all died in the 80s and 90s and early 2000s um but Marvin Zborowski was my grandma Sophie's uh, neighbor, uh, next door neighbor. They, he said, we. It was almost like they were all family, and um, mm-hmm. and he died unfortunately just a year ago. But he shared so many stories with me um, that are laid out in the book, and and one of them is that, you know, my dad. Hard for him. He he doesn't really remember his own father. You know, he was ta- he said goodbye to him at the gates of Auschwitz, hoping, you know, they'd all see each other again. And they were never reunited. He barely remembers his brother. And Marvin um, was able to share stories about his father and shared with us <clears throat> that his father was actually viewed as a hero in their town. He had set up a bribery scheme and he was bribing um, not with particular Nazi guard to make conditions more bearable for mm-hmm. everybody. Um, all of the Jews in Zarki. So that was, um, we were lucky that we have, we had the ability, have had the ability to talk to so many survivors um, in my lifetime. And while my father did not speak, my grandma Sophie did. She would tell us stories. Um, And one aunt did not tell stories, but she told stories to our cousin, who she viewed more as a peer because she was older. So I've been able to piece together so much. And as a journalist, Mm -hmm. it's difficult because we like our two sources and we like everything verified. And so many of my sources are gone now. So that was yeah. a little bit difficult. And I had to put that into the prologue of the book and just explain, you have to understand, I did I did my best with what we had. Um, but there, there are some holes I'll never be able to fill in and some things I'll never be able to double verify. And that's, you know, that's something we had to live with, you know, as we put this together. Yeah. I mean, even with the holes, great story. Must say great story. Yeah, I mean... <clears throat> there are so many, there were so many stories that didn't even make the cut, <laughs> you know, that, that we took out. Um, and when we went, we weren't going to, the plan was never to publish this widely. The plan was to self-publish it. I had a deal in place with a self-publisher. I was going to pay to publish it. Um, I had done a lot of research and talked to a lot of different self-publishing companies. And right before I pulled the trigger on that, uh, a family friend, actually a former rabbi who is an author said, you know what? reach out, try to get an agent because an agent can get you, you know, might be able to get you, you know, published, you know, professionally. So I thought, you know what, Mm -hmm. let's give it a try. I'm not going to try that hard because I'm okay with having this in a, in a drawer for the kids, the grandkids and the great grandkids one day and all of that. That's okay. I'm okay with that, you know? And, uh, so we, um, I reached out to six different agents and, um, I got pretty much immediate responses, sorry, not interested. And then one person reaches out, this woman, Irene Goodman, and she says, um, I'm halfway through your manuscript, um, but I can tell you right now, I want I want to sign you guys. 
She said, come in, as long as you're in the New York area anyway, might as well meet in person. So she set up an appointment to come in the next week and we come in and she goes, I, I can't believe this. She said, I reached out to some publishers and said, just so you know, Michael Bornstein and his daughter are going to be in my office this morning if anyone wants to swing by. And she said, uh, a agent right away is on, on his way, or a book publisher um, is on his way over from uh, uh, Simon & Schuster and um, one from Macmillan. And then we ended up, the book ended up in a bidding war between wow. three of the biggest publishers in the country, um, Simon & Schuster, Little Brown, and Macmillan. And it was something we never anticipated. I was very ready to pay money to see this published. And within, um, you know, uh, one week, uh, we had this, you know, bidding war for the book. And um, when it was published, uh, week one, it ended up in the New York Times bestseller list. So um, we call that That's a miracle, amazing. too. We were surprised. We didn't know if there'd still be interest, you know, hearing these stories. And um, uh, can you can you repeat that? You said uh, the three largest yeah, three of the biggest. Uh, I don't know who's the official biggest right now, but three of the largest publishers in the country ended up um, fighting for the manuscript, which was incredibly exciting. That was Simon & Schuster, Little Brown, and Macmillan. Um, so we found ourselves, when they walked into these meetings, you know, initially they walked into this conference room, we were like, all right, ready with our talking points and how to sell them on Survivors Club. And the next thing we know, they're trying to sell us on why they would do such a good job editing and publishing. And we were like, oh my God, our heads were ready to explode. It was really yeah. exciting. Uh, <laughs> That's one of my favorite features, but how, how did you decide on which publisher to go with? Like, what was it that they said or yeah. offered that you were like, this is, this is us. This is the person that we so want to be with. Or the company in want the back with. of our minds, we just had a really great feeling about, um, this man, Wes Adams, um, the editor at Macmillan. We just felt he recognized that this was our, our baby. And this wasn't just like any old project. He um, he seemed to care as much as we did about the integrity of Survivors Club. And um, so we were really hoping that he would come in with the highest offer, but we also thought if he didn't, it'll probably still be him too. And in the end, uh, just P.S., there's like no money in book publishing. It's not like we walked away, <laughs> you know, and we're like, we'll never work another day in our lives. It wasn't that. Um, but, you know, he did, they did uh, manage to squeak out the highest offer. And it, it really, it didn't matter in the end. It was really about going with the um, the publisher where we felt the safest, um, where we did would sort of try to encourage changes that, you know, felt the integrity of the book, you know, was, was um, diminished in any way. I mean, they all, honestly, all three would have done an excellent job. In the end, I think it really just came down to connection. We really felt a strong connection with them. Awesome. Um, are there any intentions of maybe, you know, sharing the story of your father um, after, you know, surviving the Holocaust, like, you know, having his grandkids go to soccer games, being a part of the family? Is there a follow-up book that we can expect, you know, that continues the story? Because uh, I think the story afterwards is just as it's important. It's so interesting that you asked that. Well, for the paperback, we did update some things. Um, one is that th there weren't just 11 grandkids, there were 12 by the time the paperback version came out. Um, so we have done a little bit and some other updates, um, but uh, some other things that we've learned, we've added into it. Um, I did start, I did a pitch for a follow-up book and 
uh, I talked to Wes about it, the editor, and he said he really loved it, but he said he took it back to all of his people and they felt we're too close to it, that we care so much. But he's like, I don't know if there's enough appetite, you know, to, for a follow-up. So, I mean, it's, I still mm. have that pitch sitting there. Who knows? Maybe I'll push it again one day. But um, for now, we're just grateful that this is out there. One of the things that we added into the paperback, actually, two two really important things that we added. One is throughout my research, I really wanted to find something tangible for my dad um, to remember his brother. We forgot to ask my grandma Sophie before she passed what was his birthday. That's just not something that came up and that we, we can mark the day, you know. Um, and mm-hmm. I, I found birth certificates for everyone else in the family. I never found Samuels, but right before the hardcover came out, so it was too late to update anything there. I was in contact with a researcher in the Northern UK and she said, um, I've been doing my own research here on this little community in Jarki. And she said, I've, I'm in contact with this man whose dad owned the only photography studio in the area before, during, and just after the war. And this, the son of the photographer, who's an old man himself now, is sitting on a treasure trove of photo negatives that have never been shared before publicly. And she said, but I got him to agree to share them with me. And she said, I have got hundreds and hundreds of these photo negatives from that time period. You want to take a look. And we looked and we looked and we looked and we found uh, my dad's brother, Samuel. Uh, and we included wow. the paperback. Um, yeah. Um, and it's eerie. It's a picture of Samuel with my grandma, Sophie. It looks exactly like my father. It looks exactly like my brother. It looks a lot like my son. It's just so crazy. to, to So for my father to have that photo, um, I was sidelined wow. at my son's uh, swim meet at the time. And I was just killing time looking through these photo negatives. And I was like, my God, that's Grandma Sophie. And I'm like, oh my God, that looks like my father. But you could see the date. It's not my father. It was before my father was born. Um, Marvin Zborowski confirmed it was Samuel for us. And uh, I, I screenshotted it and I sent it to my father. And I called him from with all this noise in the back. And I said, Dad, I think I found him. And he looked and he got, he started crying. He never cries. And then oh I called gosh. him and I said, I can't talk because Jack's about to swim. And I hung up and I called back 10 minutes later and he's like, mom and I are at Kinko's. We're having it blown up full size. So he was really excited about Aww. that find. And the other thing that we added in is that right after Survivors Club was very first published in 2017, um, we had set up a website and this woman reaches out and says, writes to my father and says, I'm the little girl sitting next to you on the front of the book. And we started talking to her and we were able to find out that there was another survivor who lives uh, nearby, also pictured uh, with them at Liberation. And all three of them, uh, Tova Friedman, Sarah Ludwig, and my father were reunited about two months after that. Um, They could have these three kids pictured in this very famous image from the Liberation of Auschwitz, could have lived anywhere in the whole world after the war. And would you believe they have been living just miles apart in New Jersey for decades? And never read it. Wow. Yeah. So that was a really surprise. So we included that uh, update in, in the, the paperback version. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Nice. I'm curious. Uh, what's What would you say was the hardest part about um, just gathering all of that information? Like, I, I, I happen to be someone... Um, really interested in history. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I would consider myself like amateur historian myself, I guess. Um, but when like gathering primary sources, like having to talk through, I imagine the difficulty of having to meet, because like in this case, some of your primary sources are people who went through that trauma. Yeah. 
So having to like have those discussions and like revisit those details, I guess that might, I'm assuming that actually might be the most difficult, difficult thing. It was, I guess what I would ask. Definitely. No, it's a good question. Um, I would say that it was the most difficult because I'm asking people to relive the worst part of their lives. And for the most part, the survivors I talk to live wonderful, thriving, happy lives. And to ask them to sit down and spend hours with me talking and sort of going back in time, I was so grateful for their time. That That's just, there's nothing more important than those primary sources. Um, so I was incredibly grateful for that. And the interviews took a really, really long time because they're older. Most of those sources are well into their 90s. And so, and they want to talk on their timetable and on their, you know, so it was mm -hmm. very difficult. I would come in with something specific, like specific the areas I wanted to focus on when Zarki was first, you know, liquidated or um, the arrival at Auschwitz or, and they want to tell you things the way they want to tell them to. And I had to set aside my time, my timetable and my focus. And sometimes by just shutting up and listening, I learned a lot more and that's where I got the best nuggets of information, but it, it's mm -hmm. hard for me. You can see I'm a talker to like, just shut up and listen. So, um, it was, but it was, it was an amazing process. I have met people that feel like family to me. Um, and those relationships are incredibly special to me. Um, and then when you did find one source that then backs up a second source, that was super exciting. So Marvin tells me about this, you know, hero status of my grandpa. And I'm like, that's really amazing. But I want to, you know, I wish, I wish I knew more. And he pointed me in the direction. He said, I'm pretty sure this other survivor wrote about it. He made it to Israel and I, it's in Hebrew. He said, but you can look. And I was able to find, um, uh, just a, like the, just a blurb was edit, was translated into English. And I was, so I was able to like track down what it was. It's called Kehilat Zarki, the destruction of Zarki. It's a collection of essays from survivors who made it to Israel. So I ordered it in Hebrew. Um, and then I found this lovely, um, woman also in her nineties, um, who belongs to my temple. She's an Israeli, um, uh, immigrant. And she sat with me and just translated the book for me. Um, and was able to verify even more stories, many stories about my grandpa having um, used that bribery scheme to help save people. And and I will not ever forget this one line that, because she, she was reading all, she was translating slowly. It was a very slow process. And she said, hold on, I think I'm getting, she saw his name, the name Bornstein. And I said, that was the name she knew she had to watch for. She said, hold on, hold on. I think I'm getting to something. And she said, Many, this, the, the author wrote, many men who were fated to die are alive today because of Israel Bornstein. And I was like, oh my God, that's him. And then it went on to outline, you know, this, this scheme that he had. Um, and, um, and the many times he came in and, and helped save people. And I, uh, that was really, really great to have two sources, <laughs> two sources, you know, and, and there were several occasions like that where I was like, the world's like collide, like I've got. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so that, that always felt really good. Yeah. Awesome. Are there any sources that you wished had the opportunity to see the published book? Oh. I know that, you know, you mentioned yes. that, you know, a few people passed in the 90s before the 2000s, and this was published after the 2000s. Yeah. So is there anyone that you were like, I wish they had the opportunity to yeah. read this that was a source? Oh my gosh, yes. My grandma, Sophie, 
she did talk about the Holocaust, never in front of my father. She would come and stay with us for like a month at a time sometimes from Florida. And so my dad would be at work all day and we'd come home from school and she would tell us things. It was almost like I couldn't stop talking about the Holocaust sometimes. And mm. I want, I wish she knew like that people care. Look, it's in a book and people bought it and people care. Like, cause she mm -hmm. would just talk and talk to us. And it was like, she wanted some kind of, I think she wanted to know it would never be forgotten, you know, and I yeah. wish so much. Um, I, I believe, I believe her hand was in this though. Um, throughout, I do that. Uh, there is a, I'm not highly religious, but I am, I guess, kind of spiritual or more so lately, um, throughout the process. Mm -hmm. And I do feel her hand was in this, um, when all those, publishers showed up and were interested. I, you know, I'd like to believe that she, she knows. Um, and the brother, her brothers and sisters, I think, you know, I talked to their children and, um, they're really happy, um, that their parents' stories are remembered. Um, and it's cathartic, I think for all of us to see it in print, um, to see our family story in print. So so I want to ask one more question about the book, and then maybe we'll touch upon what's currently happening in today's climate, um, which I think Durbin has a, a few different questions or topics. But um, I know your book was a New York Times bestseller, um, and I'm sure that wasn't the purpose of the book or writing the book. But besides of getting all of these stories you know, put on paper for your kids' kids and your next generation, next generation to read, um, did you accomplish everything that you wanted to accomplish with this, with this book that you created with your father? Was there anything that you wish that you weren't able to succeed in when you initially had this vision? I think I can say mission accomplished. Um, but I, I view it as a, as a living, breathing thing. And I intend if I find more information and I'm always, you know, when I travel different countries, I'm always looking to, you know, I always take the Jewish tours to see, maybe I'll learn some new nugget or, you know, um, I would, I, I intend to keep updating as I learn more information. Um, so I can't say, I guess I could say the mission is accomplished, except that, um, I, I always keep the door open um, if I'm able to learn more information or I come across, I go to a lot of events where there are other, you know, second generation survivors. And, and sometimes they tell me things um, that help lead me to new, you know, research. So um, as long as I can keep updating, I will definitely keep updating. And I'm grateful again to have a publisher that cares about that. Awesome. And I do love this section of the book where there are like these pictures yeah. of different things. I don't want to show them all off yet because I want readers to read it. But as you continue to update the book, it would be amazing if you can include more pictures about, you know, what happened in historical events. Yeah. Um, because I, I love that you're updating it as you get more information to make it as relevant as possible. So that's awesome. Yeah. yeah. The photos are uh, not only did, you know, my my father survived and the aunts and uncles survived, but so many photos survived because of those few uncles who went into hiding. They took briefcases of photos with them. So, and um, thanks to um, Ancestry DNA or one of the, I think it was Ancestry DNA. Um, we have connected with um, another 
branch of the family tree um, that escaped to Belgium. Oh, wow. My grandpa Israel, his um, he had a first cousin who um, made it to Belgium, and he made it to Belgium mm-hmm. with a stack of photos. And his granddaughter wow. Sonia, who you know speaks French, but she speaks a little bit of English, she reached out. She was able to find us, and um, she said, uh, "We, you know, we thought she was not." She had read the book. It's, the book was published in uh, French too. We thought she had just read the book and was saying, "Well, she has a similar last name or some, something." But she, we she, we really didn't think she was related to us. And then she sent us this photo of my grandma as a teenager, and we were like, "Oh my god!" You know, dating my dating my my grandpa, and uh, we're like, "Yeah, that's we are related. That's pretty cool." So, wow. um, yeah, so that's been neat. That's pretty cool. That's awesome. Technology. Um, I recently did Ancestry and um, found some cousins and relatives throughout that process. So I do think it's a very powerful It is. Um, I'm a little worried my battery's a little low. Can I pause for one second and just grab a charger? Yeah, of course. Yeah, of course. Yeah, no, no, no Ancestry for me. <laughs> I remember you talking about it. Your yeah. thoughts of that? I don't really, don't really trust it. But there, there is um, alternative ways, um, like just gathering documentation from your mother and father's side and um, tracking archives, things of those sorts, which take longer. But be surprised how um, far back some uh, documentation goes. Okay. Okay, let's see if I can make this still sit up. Oh no, that's gonna be the problem. Let's see if this will stay. Stay. Hold on. Does that look straight enough? Okay. Yes. Yeah, looks okay. straight. Perfect. All right, Dervin, I'll kick it off to you. So, um, I've got um, two, I guess, three questions. Um, are you familiar with the term mass psychosis? Mass psychosis. I'm not yeah. familiar with it. I've certainly heard it, but I'm not familiar with it enough to assume that it's anything other than just um, people following one, like kind of what's happening in the country a little bit um, right now. Uh, it, yeah. It, um, I, I guess some folks would describe it as uh, when a large part of a society focuses its attention to a leader or leaders uh, or a series of events and their attention focuses on uh, one small point or issue, or should I say targeted issue, mm-hmm. um, basically like a epidemic of madness, yeah. some would say. Yeah. Um, uh, in in your, I guess in what I'm trying to uh, lead to, I guess, um, I'm curious as to how some of the folks you connected with described what, um, I guess, that mass psychosis was like leading up to um, just this like tragic period of time where where people seem to be um, almost like in a psychosis, uh, blindly, uh, or not, not blindly, just kind of being fueled with so much hate, uh, to do such a thing. It's, it's the only, only way, but, um, yeah, I, I'm just, um, it, it, so I as someone who, uh, research on that right. and have my own thoughts on that. But in terms of what other people have said, um, most of my research centered around Poland and in Poland, um, well, there was anti-Semitism for sure, but there was not this blind, you know, following of a leader because Hitler rose to power right next door in Germany. And um, so while 
Polish people were aware of what was happening in Germany, um, I, I think that they didn't really believe it was coming to their doorstep until it literally came to their doorstep. Um, so I don't think they were as aware. So I didn't spend as much time talking to uh, my sources about that and how this could have happened. But I've certainly researched it a lot. And a, and it it hits me, your question hits me because, um, you know, I think about what we are seeing in our own country today and some of this, mm -hmm. you know, blind faith and this belief that I alone can fix it, that one man or, you know, one party or one, you know, can can fix one and this demonization of different things, whether it be immigration or, you know, um, I think back to what did happen in Germany and the scapegoating and, um, you know, I remind people that the Holocaust didn't start with burning bodies. It started with, um, jokes about Jewish people in Der Stormer magazine. It started, are you guys frozen? You're, you look frozen to me. No, no, we're mm -hmm. hearing you. Okay. We're, we're listening. Yep. Yeah. So the Holocaust didn't didn't start with burning bodies. It started with jokes, and it started with graffiti on walls and broken glass, and it's it started with trashing Jewish businesses, um, creating laws that made it hard for for Jewish people to even conduct business or to own land, um, or to own property, and marginalizing a group. And I think we are seeing, we are seeing um, pieces of that. I mean, COVID-19, suddenly it wasn't safe for Asian Americans to get on New York City subways. Um, immigration, suddenly there was a huge rise in discrimination against Hispanic people uh, or Muslim people. I mean, the um, according to the Anti-Defamation League, um, hate crimes or hate incidents involving Jews are up 34% last year alone, the highest number recorded on record since the ADL started tracking this back in the early 1970s. That should scare us all. A rise in hate crimes against Black people, LGBTQ minorities. We are normalizing hatred. And that's kind of what we saw, that mass psychosis, I guess, um, that's sort of a piece of that mass psychosis you mentioned, um, you know, back in Germany in the 1930s, it just became normal mm -hmm. to scapegoat and hate. Yeah, definitely. Um, I can't help but think, uh, what is, uh, what seemed to, uh, consistently, uh, I guess, desensitize people. Yeah. So, so to speak. To it. Exactly. Um, the reason for my, my question is um, as someone who uh, appreciate history, I, I try to learn from it as much as I can. And it's like uh, when you feel, um, I guess, um, similarities mm -hmm. in terms of the mass psychosis, for example, and mm -hmm. um, it, it, it could uh, it could worry you, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. uh, I hit my dad gets asked the question sometimes do you think a Holocaust could happen again? And it always scares me to hear him say, yeah, you know, he says, I don't know that it'll necessarily be a Holocaust against Jewish people. It could be against, you know, 
Muslim people. It could be against black people. It could be against, you know, Asian people. But he believes that those same things that existed in society still exist today. And it worries him that we're forgetting the past, you know? I absolutely agree. And I'll just preface this. I'm not a, a huge historian, but I kind of know a little bit of, of things. But, um, and you can correct me if I'm correct, but I'm pretty sure that they were sections of in Africa or countries in Africa where there were groups that killed other groups because something, because they looked different. Um, um, I don't know if it was apartheid, but I feel that happened after the Holocaust. So, I mean, those things happen all the time. It's, it feels yes, like to me. That, that's absolutely true. And, you know, we've seen it in um, the Middle East in places. We've, you know, yes, um, yeah. there are examples. So maybe not at the scale, yeah. maybe not at the yeah. scale and how many other countries were impacted, yeah. but and there was I an feel Armenian we've seen genocide. it in very small pockets. You know, there was an Armenian genocide. There, there yeah. are, um, you know, treatment, you know, the, the, the treatment of humans in Rwanda, there, there are many examples mm-hmm. of cruelty, torture, and essentially Holocaust, you know, mini Holocaust. I think what makes the um, Holocaust of the 1940s um, so important to remember is just the scale on which it happened. Who could ever yeah. have me- thought that 6 million people could be killed? You know, tar- 6 million Jews. I mean, other people yeah. killed as well, you know, um, could be killed in such a short period of time that mass, um, even, even before the, um, even before the, uh, actual, you know, death camps were created or turned into death camps. I was talking to one survivor, his name is mm-hmm. Michael Silberman. Um, and he, um, uh, was taken, he and his mom and dad, um, were taken to, um, oh, the town is, uh, Helnov, it's called Hel- Helnov this town. Mm -hmm. And at the time there was no like real official mass extermination. So what they did is they would line everybody up and they would put you in the back of the trucks and then they would take the exhaust pipe and they would route it into the back of the truck and close the door and seal it. And you would drive around for 30 minutes and you would open the door and everybody would be dead. And that's how he lost his fam, the rest of his family. And his mom said to him, run, just run. They were getting on. She said, just run. And he ran and he ran and he ran into the woods and he never saw his mother again, um, but he survived. The how 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 does any human, uh, to use Durbin's words, how do you become so desensitized to death that you're okay with? Oh, put the yeah, put the exhaust in. That that's a good idea. Put the exhaust in the back, you know, and then just put. Oh, that's such a smart idea. I mean, that conversation was had. What a smart idea. Let's do that. You know, I I I don't know, but. It's scary. Yeah. yeah. Crazy. Well, what, what drives me crazy a bit is uh, not a bit, a ton is um, it seems like um, a con to, uh, I guess, our collective nature at times is this want to be led. Yeah. Uh, and sometimes um, I'd say uh, the wrong individuals, um, you know, like uh, uh, Hitler, or, uh, you know, uh, King Leopold mm-hmm. or something like that could, um, galvanize such a people to uh, ignore like obvious wrongs. I think we have to do a better job of teaching independent thinking. And 
I say that as someone with my own strong opinions that I force on my children. <laughs> but I, I also, in my moments of like clarity, I'm like, no, they need to form their own opinions too. And I am trying to teach them to watch the news more critically. Just because somebody's wearing a suit doesn't mean that they are the moral authority on something or because they're well-spoken does not mean that they know what they're talking about or that they're saying something that's rational. And we have to, I think, do a better job of teaching young people to trust their gut sense as opposed to just blindly following. Well, everybody else in my school and everybody else, you know, in my family believes this, you know, or everybody else in my town believes this. Um, I was just out recently campaigning myself because um, for some of the reasons that we're talking about, I decided to run for school board. Um, I never saw myself running for an elected position before, but this year it felt really important. And so um, I'm proud to say I won on the election November 8th. Um, but oh, thank you. Thanks very 